And they both pointed the guns at me as if to say, like, bang, bang. And I remember thinking at the time, threaten me for what? And that was, that was my mindset. I know at that point in your life was also, I've heard you use the words, crumbling around you. How'd you manage that? In all honesty, I don't really know that I did. Drive in the darkness, and I always have, and it's not a healthy darkness either. Today's guest is the legendary boxing journalist, Trish Dixon. Tris is an esteemed author, journalist, podcaster in his own right. But more than that, he's a really, really lovely and inspiring man. Tris is so open with his struggles. Tris talks to me about the suicidal thoughts he's had his entire life and still has to this day. He tells me about going to America and sleeping under a bridge to keep his boxing dream alive. It's a crazy, crazy yet wonderful and inspiring story. Please get ready, listen up, learn from this great, great man. Right, let's get stuck in. Tris Dixon, award-winning author, broadcaster, uh, muscle man, (laughs) um, amazing father, wonderful husband. How the blooming hell are you, mate? I'm doing well. I'm I'm really flattered to be invited to be here because obviously we go back a while. You've mm-hmm. been a guest on my podcast. And um, yeah, I mean, with all the people that you could have selected, um, I think I'm suffering from imposter syndrome today. No way. No way. I, I, I hate that, actually. And we can talk about it. But let's, let's start with this. I, I get frustrated when people... You have an unbelievable story. And I've, like I said, I've known you for 10, 12 years. Um, we've kind of... We became friends, I think, like four or five years ago when I when I left boxing and was forced to retire from boxing. Like our friendship really developed. We spent a lot of time with each other over the last few years. Mate, you you are a phenomenal human being. And it annoys me when people put themselves down. Like that's a very British thing, isn't it? Americans they love building themselves up. And we both spent a lot of time in America. In the UK, we, we put ourselves down. You're mate, you're a phenomenal human being. You've done so much stuff. And I'm so proud to have you on the podcast to share some of your experiences because as I said, like this is called getting back up. Well, I talk to people with amazing stories, very inspiring people. You very much deserve to be here, mate. And I cannot wait to be inspired by your story and my listeners be inspired by your your story, mate. Thanks, mate. I think that it, it comes from, you know, obviously I'm just a civilian and I speak to world champion boxers, Olympians like yourself. And, and you know, I, I have great, always had great reverence for fighters, which is why I do what I do. And um, it's weird and surreal to be sat around talking to them. Even last week I was sat with uh, Johnny Nelson and Scott Welch and just thinking like, how is this just like a normal conversation? Um, and I'm sort of a part of it and, you know, almost seen as accepted, if not an equal. I don't know. We just managed to sit down and, and chat like we're doing now. And it, it's uh, it's surreal. It's just surreal. But it's it's nice. And I, I never take it for granted. Good. And, and you say that. I listened to some podcasts to, to research you for this podcast today and listened to a very good one called Bottled Up Blokes, which I recommend people go and listen to. And they had you on and then you left. And then the two chaps that were talking could not believe they had you on their podcast. I don't know if you, if you heard that at all, but they, they were saying, he's such a nice guy. He's such a, he, you know, he was interviewing Conor Ben yesterday. Now he's talking to us. I can't believe it. So you also have this, this aura, which I don't think you realise you have. So 
mate, be very proud of yourself. You've done some amazing things in your life. We're going to talk all about it. The trials and tribulations. I want to start with something which is going to be a bit shocking. Um, a number of years ago, you were in a gym and you had a chat with a fella and you were talking about, about he was telling you about his story and you were going through a very bad time in your life at the time. And then you said subsequently that he could have been telling your story. You went home a few hours later, put the telly on, and that man that was trying to open up to you had thrown himself in front of a train. And, and I used to say committed suicide. The correct word is completed suicide. Because committed, for those people that want to understand that, I learned that very recently. Committed suicide is an old-fashioned statement when suicide was classed as a, a crime. You commit a crime, you commit suicide. The correct term is completed suicide. When you put the telly on that day and you saw that young man or that man had, 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 had killed himself, how did that make you feel? Um, not great. Um, we had met, it was, it was uh, between Christmas and New Year um, 2010, and it's fair to say my life was crumbling at the seams at that point, uh, to the point where I was having daily suicidal thoughts myself. And when this chap spoke to me in the gym, he was clearly in need of help and support because he was going through the exact same thing that I was, a marriage breakup that was really not pleasant, not that there is such thing as a pleasant breakup, I guess. Um, but we just experienced the same things. And the thing was, because of, you know, my relationship was still not actually over. Like, I hadn't really made a call as to where I was going to go. So I didn't confide in him the way he confided in me. And... I kept it to myself and I could have related to him and said, oh, look, you know, we're in the same boat and all this kind of stuff and really, like, you know, helped him identify with something that we're going through the same thing. And instead, I was just like, oh, you know, I'm really sorry for you. Like, that's terrible. Um, I'm always here if you need anything. You know, let's meet up for a drink and and all the rest of it. And, and so, yeah, it made me feel absolutely terrible because you know, had he realised that not only is he not alone, but someone's in the exact same boat as him, that, you know, it could have, it could have changed something. So, yeah, it's been a while since I thought about that, giving me some, some goosebumps. But, um, yeah, it takes me back. And, yeah, it was really, really sad. And the guy was, like, like so many folks in our demographic, you know, which is a high suicide risk, um, he's one of those guys from the outside looking in, you'd be like, oh, you know, always smiling, always got a nice word for someone, always says hello, um, always got something to say, big Saints fan, up the Saints. Um, and, and yeah, so you would never have been able to tell the trauma that he was experiencing if you didn't know him, but he, he sort of shared it with me. But um, I didn't um, clearly give him uh, enough hope or optimism that he could continue when the way things worked out, I could have, I could have and should have done things differently. And what did you learn from that lesson, that life lesson? Oh God, that's a tough one, because it it, it, it was it was obviously a, a a time capsule where, you know, I did what I did for for other people's benefit. I was trying to look after people close to me, so I tried to be quite insular with that. Um, and I suppose going off, off on a slight tangent, I've always found, I've always found a, a peculiar high in isolating myself and keeping everything bottled up. Um, it's uh, 
I like the burden and I like the darkness to the places it takes me. You like? I like it. I thrive in the darkness and I always have. And it's not healthy darkness either. Like, I don't want to live there, but there's something appealing about going there. Um, it's, uh, it's a unique thing. And you know what? I think um, one of the ways I address that now is by training on my own. Um, in the sense that it allows me to go to, into a dark mindset while producing the feel-good chemicals that keep me balanced from giving into the darkness. Hey, the juxtaposition of what you've just now said is really <laughs> quite like, I've got goosebumps. Wow. Um, but I think, you know, I was talking about this to, a, to, a, to another boxing writer, Elliot Wurzel, recently uh, on the podcast. And, you know, we some of the best writers thrive in darkness and loneliness and cutting themselves off. Like I do have this dream of, of having a house overlooking water and being able to write and having solitude and, you know, being able to write until I'm sort of 80, 90 years old, still churning out books um, and looking over a, a, a calm sea or, or a lake or something um, where I can be by myself and alone with my thoughts. Um, yeah, like that, that's a dream. Like I think you sort of, some people thrive in, in solitude and some people absolutely hate it. But um, I think there's a certain strength in knowing that, you know, if you're on your own, you're, you're going to be okay. Success is defined as an accomplishment of an aim or purpose. That's what the dictionary says. What is success to you, Tris? Success is reaching goals and hitting targets and markers, um, you know, and I think, you know, in life and business and whatever you choose to do, like you need to break it down to short, medium and long-term goals. Obviously, you know, when people do fall short, they're generally going straight for a long-term goal and not looking to plan their way there or structure it. Um, I was lucky that certain doors opened at certain times while obviously having to be at the right place at the right time. Um, Lucky or fortunate, I think there's a difference there. Yeah, a little bit of both. I suppose it's one of those things that I tell people now in terms of boxing writing. If you keep knocking, sometimes a door will open. Obviously, don't knock to the point where you're winding everyone up and annoying everyone. But occasionally knock and just say you're still there. Um, but I think, I think success is, is, is the ability to draw up these goals and have them in your mind's eye and, and to see them through. You know, it's obviously easy to become disheartened if things aren't working you know, before I got a break in, in any kind of journalism, you know, I was um, trying to make things work in boxing from like 2000 to 2003 in just to, to get into boxing. I, I ended up um, with a load of freelance articles for Boxing News that allowed me to form some sort of haphazard portfolio of work um, that I sent off um, to local papers and, and tried to apply for jobs. And I remember I got like hundreds of job rejections Every Saturday and Monday, there was a media guardian section in the Guardian. It had all the media jobs. And I've, got, I've kept all those letters of rejection. There's like 150. One came from Piers Morgan, signed, when he was the editor of The Mirror, saying, oh, you know. And to be fair, he's one of the few guys that did get back to me. He said, oh, you know, sorry, we haven't got any openings at the minute, but if you try this. And he gave me another alternative, which was great, because a lot of the answers were just dead ends. Um, but you've got to keep trying, right? Like... And you've got to keep, you, you do have to keep knocking on the door. And I think part of the problem is now in the social media age, which, which I wasn't in then at the time, um, 
you know, everyone expect, expects instant success and instant gratification. And I do see it with my kids now. Like they see a trick on, in football or something that they see online and they go to the garden and they, they'll try and do it and they'll become disheartened because they can't, can't do it. But they haven't seen the thousand hours that people have put into trying to, trying to pull these tricks off. Or, you know, every time they, they shoot at the goal and it's not gone in off the crossbar or in the top corner, they're a little bit downhearted when it just goes in the goal anyway because everyone's used to these highlight clips. You know, but you've got to put in the graft to get there, to get that to that, to that point where you can do it every time. And so, you know, short, medium, long-term goals are the way to, to, to do it. And it's about seeing them through and having that perseverance, sometimes courage, and definitely the desire to want to do it. 100%. 100%. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Ogogo Fitness. Ogogo Fitness is my brand new fitness app I'll be launching really, really soon. I've created this app because I truly want to help people. I believe everybody should have the right to exercise and be fit and be healthy. I've brought this to the world to promote physical health and mental health. I've designed 60 preset seven minute workouts ranging in difficulty from round one, which is pretty easy, to round 12, which is really, really challenging. As well as that, I've got my personal workout builder. I've created 50 different exercises and you have the choice to create your own playlist from the 50 different workouts, which gives you an option of over 80 million combinations of workouts, 80 million. So from your GoGo Fitness app, you can literally choose for millions and millions and millions of workouts personalized for you and what you're training for. So head over to agogofitness.com, register your interest, and be the first to know when Agogo Fitness is launching. Tris, um, you sit here before me, and I'm, I'm, I go about 16 and a half stone, 104 kilos. I'm six foot two. I, I feel like I'm quite a... Quite the specimen. <laughs> you are. Then, no, 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 no. But then I see you and go, oh man, I gotta get in the gym. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta not have chocolate powder on my cappuccino <laughs> when they when they offer it to me. Mate, you are an unbelievable uh, specimen of a person. Um, it, it, I wasn't gonna say this, but I noticed when we met downstairs just then and how you sit. You sit quite small. Do you know you do that? Do you know you you, you make yourself almost less than you are? Um, is that a conscious thing? Is that a subconscious thing? So there's two things. There's one, I, I, and I, I've never actually said this publicly, but I don't, I don't like being big. Like I would love to be like 10 kilos less. I've told, you know, I told my friends and my wife and stuff. If, if given it away, but, I'll have it. I'll, t- <laughs> mate, I'll take it. I'll take the triceps, the shoulders. You, you know, like in, in the first lockdown, like I got down to like, I think it was 99.7 kilos. And it was the lowest I'd been for like 15 years. And it was really, really tough and like really challenging. I'm just a big dude and, and I have no desire, particularly as I get older with the, with the training I do, like with CrossFit and a lot of gymnastics and weightlifting, like I am stronger, better, fitter, faster, more mobile when I am leaner and, and lighter. But to start chipping under 100 kilos is, is real grind. In terms of being smaller, I mean, the only thing, you know, the Sheffield boys, Galahad and Kelbrook and all that, they always say like... Um, you don't look too. You don't look very big, like when you got your clothes on. Not like taking, but obviously in terms of Instagram and social media, they're like you don't. You don't look like that. And I mean, I don't know if I consciously do it, but um, 
I don't know. I, I definitely don't see myself as a as a big dude or a guy that's massively in shape. I think I'm in good nick for my age, you know, 44 years old and, and training. Um, but also, like, with, with the type of training I do, I'm okay, but, like, I'm not elite. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the elite crossfitters and the best guys at my age group are, you know, on another level to me. Like, not even another level, but stratosphere is different to me. So... You know, it's hard to think you're you're this and you you you're this good and you're you're awesome in that when you're actually <laughs> getting your butt handed to you by loads of other people around the yeah, world. Comparison's the 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 thief of joy, isn't it? You know, I think you should look at yourself and be very proud of where you are. I love that saying. I love that saying, and I do use it. But I think the thing is, I use it for motivation. You know, I use it for motivation. And again, going back to that bit of the darkness, you know, thinking you're not quite good enough and you're not up to scratch. And, and that there's more work to do. Why not, you know, why not use it as fuel to the fire to make yourself better? You struggle with body dysmorphia, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I don't know who doesn't. I don't know who doesn't, you know, like you, like when you I see you. Like, <laughs> only, when I, only when I scroll and see Tristics and doing press-ups. I don't know who doesn't, but yeah, I mean, like, and do you know what as well? <laughs> there was a when I hit that 99.7 kilos right uh it was in a lockdown and I put up a, a picture um on Instagram and and I was like and I looked back at it a couple of years on and I've never I've never really got massively out of shape because I always train but there's sometimes where I sort of and I can't cut 52 weeks a year I don't need to like life's too short like if I go out with the kids and they want to share a dessert, then let's go for it. Do you know what I mean? Like it, there's priorities in life and a bit of good food goes a long way psychologically as well. Like as a, as a reward or treat, I don't know I'd say that, but just in terms of just enjoying life. Um, but yeah, I look back on that picture and I was like, this, this was at the start of the year. I'm like, oh my God, can I get back to that? And then I like took a picture of where I was at the time and I, and I was like thinking, oh my God, I'm not, I don't feel that close. And then I thought, Actually, I filtered the living Jesus out of that picture. I, I didn't even look like that then. <laughs> I made it black and white, turned the structure up and all the rest of it. And I was like, I was like, geez, you know, I'm trying to be something I wasn't even then. Uh, so, yeah, I think... Some the comparison the, is the thief of joy. Yeah, and I think... But the body dysmorphia thing does go back, obviously, uh, to childhood and, mm -hmm. you know, me, 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 need me wanting to train because... You know, as we stand, as we sit here now, I'm 44, I've been training 30 years. I literally remember my first actual training session, which was 30 years ago. And I'd gone up to Manchester for um, a relative's funeral and I was staying in a hotel with my mum and dad. And they weren't at all um, gym people, um, but there was a gym in the hotel. And I went down to the gym because there was nothing else to do. And I used some of the weights, just like the weights machines. And I was like, this feels pretty good, you know? And so I had, so, so subsequently I, I never really stopped. Um, but there was, there was a period at, at boarding school where, you know, at that, at that age, it doesn't really matter what training you, you're doing. If you don't grow and your body doesn't develop um, as teenagers do, whether it's like getting taller, going through puberty and everything else, like you do get puppy fat. And I ended up getting puppy fat. And then, you know, to, to make things worse, I was quite a sporty kid, but then I snapped both Achilles tendons. And so I couldn't, I couldn't get around and was on crutches for a period of time. So then the puppy fat got worse. 
And then obviously I had no idea about nutrition and, and, and training and everything like that. And then I, I ended up getting teased at school. I remember now, you know, remember walking across a square at, at my private school at the time and someone shouted, here comes Mr. Wibbly Wobbly. And I'm thinking, I remember thinking at the time, the guy that was saying that was a bit chunky himself. And I'm thinking, geez, if he's saying it to me, how bad have I got? And I'm like, this is, this just isn't good. So anyway, this is, and this is kind of really where like, there was no going back from that. Like, and I also remember like that was at that, at that school, we had mandatory swimming lessons and you had to wear these little black budgie smugglers, which I know is a great look for you from Splash and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> although, although um, can you imagine me going to school ones in gold? <laughs> but uh, we had these little black budgie smugglers and like I was literally every, every time we had the swimming lesson, like whatever it was, Wednesday mornings, I was going to the sanatorium, the doctors and saying, look, I'm feeling really unwell. I don't think I should get in the pool. I felt fine. I was just shit scared about going there and everyone seeing me, yeah. short little fat kid, hadn't developed and just people thinking, oh my God, like, look at him. And obviously no one gave a shit. I didn't think that. But then going back to the nutrition thing was, like, I was starving myself then. Like, I wasn't going into breakfast because I didn't want everyone to say, oh, what's, what's the chunky guy going to have? Because they're calling me Mr. Wibbly Wobbly to my face. What are they saying behind my back? So I wasn't going there... Um, lunch I would maybe just pick at and then dinner I try and avoid as well and I just didn't know that I was slowing my metabolism right down it got to the point where once I came off crutches um my school was on Salisbury Plain and it was like I always remember um I would go to bed watching like uh, I had a little portable tv which we weren't allowed and I would watch like sports night and I'd be watching the boxing and I'd be watching some of the football highlights if there was an FA cup game or something late on BBC and be inspired by those guys and they set my clock for like 4am so I could get up and start running or you know depending on the season if it was lighter earlier I'd be getting up earlier and I would go out running in Salisbury Plain creep out through the uh, through the bedroom window which was only on the ground floor anyway and I'd run Salisbury Plain and there was a really long track up the back of the school and I, I didn't know the area so I would just run up and down that track which was about a mile each way until pretty much daybreak and then I'd get back and I'd just do as many push-ups and sit-ups. I didn't know anything else. Like, I didn't know any kind of other exercises. I didn't know that you could squat or anything like that. So I'd just do push-ups and sit-ups. And do you know what the annoying thing was? I was there, I, was, I did that at the school for about a year. And I was doing all that stuff and nothing changed. And I was like, oh my God, like, what's the point? Like, why am I doing all this work? I'm still a short little fat kid who no one likes. Um... And I'm putting on all this graft. And I left that school after my GCSEs in the summer. Was really pleased to be out of there because I was just... You hated, just, you hated school, right? Uh, it was a worst uh, time. That private school was... Apart from my divorce, that private school was probably the worst years of my life. Um, hated it. And a big reason of that was because I hated myself the entire time as well. Yeah. Um, and then I left Where that... Where did that come from? It probably yeah. came from being, you know how how I looked, but also, like, I, would do, I was just so unpopular. I didn't have one friend, like, literally one friend. Like, I... <laughs> story, you got to tell the story. you got so, to tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, I, can't, I can't actually, you know, if someone says you haven't got a friend in the world, like, 
I literally had no friends. I actually went there with friends to that school and I actually lost them as friends while I was there because they became popular and I just became... You're such a nice bloke. I don't get it. You're such a nice... I had, um, the thing is, I, I've, I'm, I'm relatively self-confident now, but I'm always introverted, right? And, and when you, the way you see it, you, 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 you're closed off. You're yeah, like, I'm just, I am just introverted. Like, and I've never been confident, like overconfident and never been sort of rambunctious or anything like that. Which is really surprising so, because like... I think people would think you were. And I don't know why, because I guess because of the jobs you've had, the things you've done in your life, I think my perception is like, oh yeah, he's like, life is great for him. Yeah, which I is think, the total I think, wrong perspective. I, I think the introversion has cost me a lot in my career. The fact that I haven't gone after jobs and positions and I see people that I do think, and I hope I don't come across as really bad saying this, but do have less talent than me, have got better gigs than me. And I'm like, ah, but then, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I don't put myself out. It's not because I'm afraid to, it's because I don't, I don't think I'm all that. And so therefore I shouldn't be out there shouting the odds and saying, oh yeah, I should get that job. And, you know, I just think, oh, well, that's life. And if the phone rings, I'll pick it up. And if it doesn't, then, you know, crack on. You know, I, I'm just, I'm obviously just trying to do me. But I know you're getting around to that story about me uh, being the bottom of the barrel. And what happened was uh, at boarding school, you had to write a list of like, one to 30 of the people that you wanted to share a dormitory with. And I'm like, I mean, I could put the popular kids at the top, but then I know that no one's going to like want to be with me. Like I'm literally, I'm either 29th or 30th on every list, whatever it is, maybe 31st <laughs> out of 30. And I'm thinking this just is not going to work well. And so, like, I think I just made up, I didn't make up names, but I just made up an order. I was like, it just doesn't, you know, it's, it's I may as well start the list at 28. Do you know what I mean? But you, you had to fill in the, the forms and, and whatever. And I kind of thought, like, I'd maybe be down to the, actually, I didn't think bottom five, mate. I knew, I knew. And I knew that it was going to be me and this other kid. And sure enough, me and this other kid got stuck in a room together. And I was like, well, I, I saw it coming and I was like, I was gutted because it reinforces like, no one likes me, bottom of the barrel. And, and no one liked me for anything I'd done because I didn't speak to anyone. Because I, you know, I, I, had no, I had no one to talk to. So then I'm in this room with this guy who like was, I thought, you know, he's possibly the only one more unpopular than me. Um, I'm not even sure that he was, you know, maybe he did have a mate. Uh, but anyway, um, Long story short is I think we were obviously both frustrated teenagers and 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 um, it got to the point where we were winding each other up. Obviously, if you share a room with someone, you're just going to cross, cross paths and rub them up the wrong way at some point. And one of us said something to the other and I thought, fuck it, you're having it. You're having it, mate. Like, I'm not the bottom of the barrel. And I thought, it's on. And I went to fight him with every ounce of my being. And I thought, if anyone's getting a shoe in today, it's your turn, sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm watching a Guy Ritchie movie. <laughs> and I got up to him and I tried to grab him around the neck. He pushes me to the ground, starts rubbing my face in the carpet. So I've got a little carpet burn on my face. And I'm thinking, this isn't how, <laughs> this isn't how it would have worked in my mind's eye. And I was like, oh, shit, I can't get out of it. He's too strong. And he was on top of me, forcing my face into the carpet. And I'm like, this is the lowest ebb. 
This is it, this is it. I am literally the bit of gum on someone's shoe. <laughs> and uh, With a carpet burn on your cheek. Yeah, exactly. And that was it. And that was like, you know, I'd love to say it was like a come to, come to Jesus moment. I'm like going to strive to be better and all the rest of it. But it wasn't. It just reinforced that I was a little piece of shit that no one liked. And um, yeah, and that was it really. And it's, it's funny now. I think, you know, had life not worked out the way it's gone, had I not started training and, and feeling better about myself and being a bit more confident, like that could have been really jarring. Do you know what I mean? And it wasn't even a life lesson. Like it was just a, it was just a shit day. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Um, An exclamation mark on uh, unhappy childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, and you know, it's funny to talk about an unhappy childhood. It, 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 I didn't have an unhappy childhood in terms of like family and that. You know, my mum and dad were together, although there were some parts in, in any long relationship where you think, oh my God, it would be better if they weren't. Um, but fortunately, we never down, went, that, went down that route. Um, my brother was four years older than, to, older than me. He's always sort of looked out to me, but then he's travelled the world loads when I was sort of that age and could have done with someone being around a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was what it was. And, it, you know, when I talk about the darkness and stiffening that resolve and being on my own, maybe that's where a lot of it comes from, you know, from being isolated and being used to being on my own from like the age of 13 through to 16. Like that's what it felt like. And I, and now I think, fuck it. Do you know what I mean? Like if I'm on my own, I'm good with that. Boxing. When, why, and how did you fall in love with boxing? Dedicate your entire life to it. You've done so much good in the sport, which you're going to come to later. But those first moments, when, why, and how did you fall in love? Good segue, because um, I mentioned putting in all that work and all that effort and my body not changing. Well, I left that school with my GCSEs, scraped through, got nine Cs. And that summer, right, um, my brother went away traveling. And so say it was from June onwards, he came back in like the September, October time. I found my way to the boxing gym in like the, the May time sort of. So this is about May 95. And I was playing rugby. I was always a decent rugby player. Even when I was a short fat kid, I had decent technique and liked to tackle and played county rugby and stuff. And I remember I was playing for Salisbury and one of my friends, Ryan Nash, who went on to be a para and now is a, a trainer, um, he said, why don't you come to the boxing club for fitness? And I mean, I had watched like Ben McClellan. I remember like where I was that night and I've watched the Eubank days. I was a big fan of Tyson coming through and, and, and all that, like a lot of kids of that generation. But I went to the boxing club. And the funny thing about that was I've got two pictures of me in those early days of the boxing club. And one, I'm like a, a short kid who's not quite so fat anymore. And then like, literally it must be like two months later or certainly months later, and this is the difference between me finishing my GCSEs and my brother going away and then my brother coming back and me, you know, being a, a regular at the boxing club. He comes back and I'm like six foot, got a six pack, grown, developed, and one of the bigger guys in the gym that they were chucking me in with, with heavyweights and stuff. And in that period of time, I just filled out, grew, and... Was, was so different. And then when I, when I start my new school or college, everyone's like, oh my God, like how long have you been training? I'm like, obviously all those days in the darkness have been paying off. And, and then I remember I, it was like, like- As you talk, I see that meme on Instagram where like there's two people burying for, for, for diamonds and they're, they're, they're tripping away. 
and one guy is right there and then he stops and walks back and one guy is still going. It's like never give up. Yeah. Never give up. Don't get disheartened by immediate results. That instant gratification you mentioned earlier. It's like always keep going because happiness is there if you keep going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so when my brother came back, it was funny because he came back with a beard and was like, and long hair and was like, ha, you didn't recognize me. And I was like, ha, you didn't recognize me. <laughs> and the thing was, I, I, was like, I was like a head taller than him. So he came, so literally came, I, I, he'd gone away, he came back and I was a head taller and a, and, a, and a bloke. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, so the boxing thing, like, you know, that, that sort of, the training came from there. And then obviously there's loads of things that it would, that it helped with. Like, obviously coming out of that period of school, like, why wouldn't it help my self-respect? Mm. Knowing that, like, knowing that I was handling myself in the gym and that I could actually fight now. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And that my body had changed, like, and that it was because I wanted to train for boxing, I was then running. You know, I was like, you know, I was running all the time and, you know, How do you well, I won't go with that. Yes, but they, they, okay. they were fine. Good. Yeah, but it was, it was um, in terms of the running and in terms of the training, it was the structure and the discipline and the routine. And this is what boxing gave me that I still carry with me today. And that's what it helped shape. And that's why, like, I'm a huge advocate for boxing in schools and, uh, you know, I'm all for everyone doing it. Obviously, the head trauma, maybe not so much, but we might get to that. But, um, but yeah, so the, so the boxing thing, like, I soon... And then, I, like, my coach, Ray Sparrow, was just a hard dude. Like, he was on the doors about... Because I ended up doing the doors from for about 10 years, and he was on the doors for, like, the generation before me. And I really looked up to him. Um, we had a really good set of lads in our gym as well. In, in I think it was the 2001 ABAs. We had two, two, two finalists, uh, Vince Jones, who was in the forces, got to the finals and lost to Courtney Fry. Mm. And Henry Castle beat Steve Bell in the ABA final. That was at the Barnsley Metrodome. So we had two kids from our gym, like a little old West Country gym, make it to the ABA finals. Um, we had a guy there, Marco Gassemi, who's now part of Tyson Fury setup. Like I did hundreds of rounds with Marco. And now he's still like giving Tyson rounds. Um, so we had a really good gym. And like, when you look, look back at those guys, generally as well, like we've got another guy there, Owen Toms, who's got um, a huge CrossFit box in, in Amesbury, Southern Quarter, which like doing huge things like nationally. Like there was a lot of real ambition and desire in that gym. And when you look at it, like a lot of those guys became successful afterwards. Yeah. And I think it's from the structure, the self-respect, the respect for each other that we were all given you know, as those guys between the age of like 16 and 20. The lessons you learned, maybe you didn't all go off to become champions in boxing, but the lessons you learned from boxing meant you and often become champions outside in life. Yeah, it's life lessons, isn't it? It's life lessons and it's how to carry yourself and it's respect for yourself and respect for others. Mm -hmm. um, and that takes you so far. Yeah, and you know, like, you can have a, you can have a, a wild ding-dong in sparring and touch gloves and be best mates and yeah. then want to go out afterwards and socialize and all the rest of it so and then it like it, it just becomes normal doesn't it you know I, I then went to to uni down in Cornwall um it was Falmouth College of Arts at the time did my journalism degree down there actually wanted why to journalism because why because <clears throat> yeah why journalism of all the things I, you could have done so there, there were two things really is but the main thing was I think I wanted to be like a serious news journalist like I thought I could see myself being on the front line in wars mm. And wow. going out and doing that with the flat jackets and stuff, which is weird because the military thing never really appealed to me. Um, Do you think that goes back to this 
this darkness that you've always sought after. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And I think there was an element and of... And the pain, you put yourself through training every single day. There's something, there's something inside you, Tris, that is so captivating and, like, yeah, just really interesting. Yeah, I think there, there was always an, an acceptance of wanting to put myself in harm's way as well. And maybe that had come from, you know, whatever it was, whether it, whether it was... Um, you know, I was, I'll give my brother a shout out here, beating the shit out of me when I was a kid as well. <laughs> um, but, but that gives you a certain type, you know, probably any younger brother can accept that or, or understand that, you know, that you take some shoe-ins on the way through, right? Um, I mean, our fights were like, remember Itchy and Scratchy from The Simpsons? <laughs> Do I? It was yeah. like cartoon violence, right? I remember him hitting me over the head with a bowling ball once. <laughs> I, I stuck a pencil through his knee. Oof. Like, we did some, we did some wild stuff. I remember he threw me in a in an ice cold river in the New Forest one January. Made me made me walk home, um, but yeah. So I mean, but all that's kind of character building. You're like, oh, well, if I can go through that, I'll go through that. So anyway, I, I wanted to be like a serious news journalist, and it was only actually in my last year at um, at uni, um, probably fueled by substances I shouldn't have been taking, um, that I had a sort of an epiphany where my old lecturer Jim Hall um who was a really really good man um I had nothing to write in my dissertation and he's like well what do you do in your own time and I'm like why box he says well why don't you do a dissertation that sort of combines writing with boxing and and so then we long story short we came to this uh this piece where I was um where I wrote about Mike Tyson's representation by the media and uh, yeah, that was my dissertation. And that was really my bridge into writing about boxing and mm. me starting to realise, ah, oh, you know, like, I kind of know the journalism stuff and I know the boxing stuff. So like, why can't I bleed them together? Um, that wasn't like the actual thing where like, right, you're off to the races, I'm going to be a boxing writer. But that was certainly the first, the first bit where they sort of intertwined. The first spark. Well, thank you, Jim Hall. From, uh, for, from British boxing and world boxing. I want to thank Jim Hall for getting you started on your journey. So we could talk. I told you, you're a really fascinating man. We are on, I've got a whole page here on my notes page. We're on the third line. How'd you get into journalism? <laughs> so, like, there's so much to get through because <laughs> you're so fascinating as a, as, as a bloke. Um, so I know you've done some mad, 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 crazy stuff that you just throw away like it's nothing. We all think our own lives are just, nah, because they're, they're our own lives. We know it. But you've done some really, really cool stuff. How, and if there's, if I'm missing big gaps in between, please like, feel free to jump in and tell me stuff. But you spent years in America being a boxer, being a sparring partner, being a journalist. That two, three, four, five-year period, can you talk to me about that, please, and like what that meant to you? What yeah, did? It's funny. I mean, again, solitude, isolation, Darkness, struggle. Um, weirdly now, like, I have so much fondness for those days, though. Like, when you think I was on my own at school and hated it, I then had the freedom out in America and loved it and embraced it. And I don't know if you can relate to that with what you've done um, with AEW and your travels through fighting, but, like, I... It was, it was weird, I suppose, because I still didn't really have loads of friends back home. Um... And like, I, don't know, I just, I just loved it. But the whole point of going over was to make a career for myself in boxing. I just didn't know as what. I remember I went out there with a business card and it said, Tristix and amateur boxer, 
boxing trainer, boxing journalist. So I remember I, I started off the journey at, Ke at Kevin Rooney's gym in the Catskills, right? Mike Tyson's old trainer. Mm -hmm. And I went to be trained by Kevin and I gave him this boxing card and he looked at it and he's like, what the fuck are you? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, but I'm here for something. <laughs> How long did you train with Kevin for? I was with Kevin like three or four months, so something like that. What um, was that? Like you must have listened to, for those that aren't boxing fans, there'll be people who aren't boxing, but they listen to this podcast. So the man that kind of helped guide Mike Tyson to become Mike Tyson, Iron Mike that we all know and, 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 and many love, um, he trained you. Yeah, so... That's so cool. Yeah, it was... So Kevin, at that point, you know, liked to drink, liked to gamble. He wasn't at the gym all the time. It was a... That was a, in itself. There were lots of lessons and it was a great experience there. So I went to Catskill and I, I, I mean... To North New, North New York, That's right. right. About four York. hours north of New York City. Yeah. So like out in the sticks, uh, in the mountains. And we had a little stable of fighters. There was a heavyweight called Andre Kopolov who would fight the Varel Touch of Sleep Williamson. He, we had Leonard Pierre who would fight Kelly Pavlik and John Duddy. We had Jay Krupp, a, a pro from New Orleans who would headline on ESPN. We had little old me um, who would do absolutely nothing. Um, but Kevin was like hit and miss at the gym. But it was, it was an amazing experience. So I went there. I'd, I'd sold my car and I was like going to stay in America for as long as I could. This was pre 9-11, so visa's not quite as stringent and all the rest of it. And I was like, well, let's, let's see it out and just see, see how long I can make it last. How old are you at this point? Like 20, 21. So a massive step for a young man to take. Yeah, didn't even think about it. Um, you know, it was, never, it was never a thing. It was like, well, I've got nothing to do at home. These job rejection letters are coming in thick and fast. Let's get out and you know, see if I can make something happen. The idea actually was to go and see Angelo Dundee and to Eddie Futch and to travel around to all these places. But when I got to Catskill... Who, who were those people? Angelo Dundee trained Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard down in Miami, uh, Fifth Street Gym. Ed, Eddie Futch trained Joe Frazier and, mm. you know, like 30 or 40 other world champs. And they were still living. And I did get, get to meet them. In fact, on that trip at the Hall of Fame, there was a really surreal moment where I was sat down having... Uh, a drink with Angelo Dundee, Eddie Futch, and the great Cuban Kid Gavilan. They've wow. all passed away now. And I was wow. like thinking, talk about imposter syndrome. Like that was even before I'd written a word about boxing. Yeah. I'll give you that one. You can have, you can have <laughs> imposter syndrome for that one. So, but anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm at Kevin's and I remember he, him saying like, where are you staying? I'm like, I've got nowhere to stay. This was on the phone. And I'm like, but I'm here now. He's like, well, I'll send someone to come and get you. You sent me Andre, his big heavyweight, to get me. And he took me to the, he's like, well, how much money have you got? I was like, nothing. And he says, well, you know, I'll take you to the cheapest place in town. And he took me to the Catskill Motel. And they were like charging like 90 a night. I'm like, I'm going to have to go home at the end of the week. <laughs> like, I haven't got that kind of money. I agreed to deal with them for like 150, like 150 for the week, something like that. And that gave me, that obviously bought me a week there. Uh, and I was going to the gym and training and made friends with Jay and Leonard in particular. Um, Andre had his fight coming up, but I, I did like Andre and his wife at the time. Um, and Leonard, I was particularly close with. Um, but after about a week there, I'd, I'd obviously had nothing to do but train. I didn't have a job or anything. So I was walking around the village. Was, I love the whole Mike Tyson story at that age. And like, I, you know, Customato, the trainer, talked about fear and how, like, you need fear, you need to be able to control it. And I'd never really heard anyone talk about pre-fight fear in, a, in, a, um, in an interview before, but Cust was great talking about it. And you all know, before a fight, you shit yourself, right? And no one ever told me that nerves are normal before you box. So remember, before my, before my fights, I, didn't I thought what was happening to me was unique to me. 
and that it was just me struggling to to contain nerves. And it wasn't down to that. It was obviously just that everyone gets it. It's just, as Cuss would say, heroes and cowards both experience fear. It's how you react to it that uh, that defines you. So I would go and like I would go and look at Mike's old house where he lived with Cuss. I went to Cuss's gravesite, and then I found this resort for Leanies, and it was like a it was like a, a kind of rundown resort. And it had a pool and the owner of Freddie Fallini, who sadly passed away a few years ago, was an elderly gent then. And he took me under his wing and um, let me stay there. And there was like an outhouse and I stayed in the outhouse. And I remember my food, my weekly food shop was a loaf of bread, a, sli- a packet of sliced American cheese and a packet of sliced ham. And I bought a, plas- uh, a polystyrene uh, water cooler, would fill it up with ice from the bar in the resort and I would put my bread and my turkey uh, and my cheese and my ham in there and I remember what I would have a sandwich a day and on the days I spied I'd have a cheese and ham sandwich mm. and on the days I didn't spy I'd have a cheese or ham sandwich like so, so the reward was like, I'd double up uh, but Freddie let me stay there like comparatively cheaply on the exchange that um, I just helped around and so I would go and get ice for the girls for the bar that was there. I would cut the grass and like they had a pool. So, I mean, I could, I didn't use it much, but I could use the pool. And, um, and yeah, like it was weird. Like I quickly got an identity because it's only a small village where people are like, oh my God, like people were doing interviews with me like, oh my God, you're the English fighter. And I'm like, mm, yeah, but I'm not that good. Um, but people were like, it, it's funny. I just felt like part of the fabric there in a short space of time. And then me and Leonard were pretty close. I remember... You know, we would clean the gym. Like, it hadn't been cleaned for ages. And that gym was a, a, basically a museum. Like, all the cuttings of Mike's career were on the walls. They were all yellowed and faded because obviously we're 15, 20 years removed from there. And one of the best things about that whole experience was um, anyone who idolized Customato the way that I did at the time, who obviously trained... You know, he was the guy that really found Mike yeah. and created what he became. Um, he also trained Floyd Patson and Jose Torres, two yep. former world champs. Um, and I was all invested in that story at the time is when Kevin wasn't there or even when he was there, he'd say like, put on a, put on a tape player. There was a cassette player. And you learn over there the, the, the Tyson punches numbered one to nine. And, um, uh, and, on the co- and you put in the tape player and on it is Cuss calling out the combinations you know, from beyond the grave. And it was just, a, it was amazing nostalgia. Yeah. And I became okay, you know, I became a, I became a decent fighter, I, I felt, there. And I sort of learned the Tyson peekaboo system. I had some pretty bad back issues there at the time, which was stopping me moving my upper body as well, um, which was, you know, meant sometimes inspiring. That was hurt, hurting less to get punched in the face than it was to move out of the way, which wasn't great. Um, Man, I've been there, Mike Gillies. <clears throat> Mike Gillies, I used to hurt me more. I'd... When I was boxing for a couple of year period, uh, I was sparring with Frotch. I was I boxed Wayne Reed and I banged him out in the fifth round. But on the third round, he threw a big loop yourself or big overhand right hook, and I saw it coming. And I said to myself, oh, I should I should move because it's going to clock me. I'm not going to I'm not going to block it. And I thought I'm not going to because the pain in my you snapped both of yours. I've done both of mine. The pain in my kidneys was so bad. I thought I'm just going to take this punch. And I'm now willingly at a point in my life where I was taking punches to the head rather than moving my feet because it hurt so much. 
So I know exactly what you mean. When you say that, I know exactly what you mean. It's not a nice place to be where you'd rather yeah. get hit in the head rather than, than, than move because you're in that much pain. Sorry to interrupt. No, it's cool. But I was so studious there because obviously I had nothing else to do. And I remember Jay, this kid from New Orleans, he was quite distracted. I remember Kevin saying to me, like, oh, he's, he's got talent, but he's not got the application. He's like him with a bad crowd and all the rest of it. And I remember sparring Jay that, we, I think we sparred a few times, but I remember one day, it was right near the end, because I left as a consequence. And I remember, like, I had been so diligent learning the numbers and the combinations. And I remember I was obviously in the away corner in the spa and um, and Jay was in the home corner. Kevin was in his corner and I had no on my side. Put my mouthpiece and went into the ring. And I remember Kevin calling out the numbers for Jay. And Jay, whether he was distracted or, he, you know, he just, he wasn't as invested as I was. So Kevin was calling out these numbers and I was hitting Jay with the combinations. And Kevin was getting pissed. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, this is really good. Like, he's going to say, like, oh, you can stay and you're really good and all the rest of it. And every time Jay was going back to the corner and he was like saying, Jay, this kid's only been here like a few weeks and you're letting him do this to you. And I was like, I was like, okay, but I'm ready for my praise now. <laughs> and every, like, we did three or four rounds after everything. He was like, just blowing up Jay. And I'm like, I've been there. And I'm like, you know, give me, give me some flowers, you know, like this, this, and, and the thing was as well, like, I never thought I was a good boxer. I never thought I could make it. But that day, but like, I wish I had on tape because I mean, it wasn't exactly Muhammad Ali against Cleveland Williams, which is <laughs> meant, meant to be one of the all time great, his, his greatest performances of all time. Yeah, but, but like, you know, for me, I was like, shit. Like, I don't remember getting hit by anything. I remember like preempting everything that he did. And, you know, having my own success. And more to the point, like, I definitely didn't get filled in. And, and, I, and I remember, like, thinking that was great. And then I remember, like, I don't think even Kevin looked at me, just took my gloves off, or Leonard maybe came and took my gloves off. And that was it. And I was like, you know, I just don't belong here. I've, like, I've done everything. I've cleaned the gym. I've been there. Like, when Kevin's not been in the gym, I've been off running with the guys. You know, I've been a bit of a punch bag for Leonard who, who gave me a, a concussion that I didn't le lose for like basically the whole of that summer. Mm. Um, and, and I just thought like, I'm putting a lot in here and I can't see, like he's not even talked about me having a fight. Uh, amateur or pro, whatever. You know, I, I would have taken whatever like to be a part of that. And like, I'm going to have to move down. I'd, I'd been to the Hall of Fame a couple of weeks before the International Boxing Hall of Fame, slept rough at the International Boxing Hall of Fame for like three nights um, so I could go there like and just try and meet some people. Fortunately, I've met a guy that I traded VHS tapes with over the years, like as a boxing anorak. And the guy lived in Syracuse and he, he put me up for like the remaining night. I remember sleeping under a big sign that says, warning like bears are nearby um, on my first night there. Um, and again, Trish, you've just said something which is so powerful. We can hone it. We haven't got time because <laughs> loads want to talk about. We could hone on that. You slept rough in, 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 in New York, of all places, for a few nights under a sign that says warning bears are around. And, mate, that's so mad to do that for a dream. It's unbelievable. Um, but please, no, please continue. But no, I suppose that, that's kind of where things were. Like, so I basically my existence became, I mean, I was going to go train with Mickey Ward, the great um, Lowell body puncher mm -hmm. and I wanted to learn his left hook to the liver we're moving on a, a couple of chapters here they've been a, a couple of months in Atlantic City living pretty rough in the ghettos there and that's naughty in Atlantic City is really really, really dodgy well I remember going to see Mickey and Mickey was like and Mickey said to me and I told him where, exactly where I was staying because it was near the Powell gym which was in the proper ghetto and Mickey said um, 
Mickey said to me, when was the last time you saw a white guy? Because, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a whole black area. Mm. Um, and and that Mickey was like the first white guy I'd seen in mm. months. Mm. Anyway, Boxing News had heard through a friend of mine, Phil Rooney, a, a, an Irish guy that I'd stayed in touch with in, in um, Amesbury. I used to write him letters from America. Um, and a much older guy. Um, they'd heard that I was going to go and train with Mickey and they reached out to me in Atlantic City and said, oh, we, this was just after War Gatti won one of the great fights. And they said, they said, oh, if you're going up to, to see him, can you do an interview with him for us? And literally everything changed then. That was really the, probably the eureka moment where Tony, Tony Connolly, the uh, assistant editor of Boxing News, called me and said, can you interview Mickey Ward? Because then the trip was nothing about going to the gym and boxing with him. It was about doing a piece. So instead of going up there and staying up there, um, I went up there. Mickey picked me up from the bus station, went to his house, did an interview. He dropped me back at the bus station. The bus station, the bus journey was like overnight back to Atlantic City. So I was in and out in a day. Um, and I got, got back to the library in Atlantic City and typed up the interview as fast as I could, sent it off. And they said, well, that's great. Like, we really like it. While you're out there, who else can you get? And like, I've been in America for a couple of years by that point. And... I said about some of the old names and they really liked the old names. They jumped off the page to them. Old names like, remember two or three? Like Jimmy Young, Harold Johnson, Jeff Chandler, like old guys from the 50s, 60s and 70s. Yeah. And so then basically the next two years of my life became working the doors in, in England and trying to make enough money to go out there to buy a Greyhound bus ticket so I could do like 30 or 40 days at a time uh, to try and find these old-time fighters. And so I would buy a Greyhound bus ticket. I would have, like, I couldn't tell you less than no money, but I was in my overdraft every time I got every time I went out there. And I would just travel. Like, in those 30 or 40 days, maybe I would spend three nights in a bed. The rest were on the road, homeless, mm. rough. Um, How old are you at this? Bus point? stations. Like early 20s, 22, 23. Mm. Um, and, and, and the thing was, so I, I obviously, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a student of the game, I knew where everyone lived, where these old fighters were. And I had a friend called Tom Jess, who's still a great friend today, who's an autograph collector. So he would have the old addresses for these fighters. And he gave me like the addresses and sometimes a phone number, but this is within the day before mobile cool. phones. GDPR, mate, they'd be having it. They'd so, be onto him, wouldn't they? Giving so, out addresses. So I had the addresses and I would go and knock on doors. And literally, you know, I'd be like, oh my God, I haven't slept for three days. Where can I go that's three days away so I can just sleep on the bus and not be properly interrupted? Obviously on a bus, you get kicked out in the middle of the night. You've got three, four hour layovers, but you can crash out of the bus station. They don't kick you out of the bus station. You can stay in the bus station. So you've got a place to crash out. I remember sleeping rough under the, under the um, Atlantic City boardwalk. I remember <laughs> sleeping under the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, I remember sleeping rough in Indianapolis in a doorway. Um, I remember going to Salt Lake City and it just being absolutely freezing there. But yes, yeah, so I would I would just move geographically. So I would be like... And this is, and what, what, what were you thinking? Obviously... I had nowhere else to be and nothing else to do. And also, like, some of these guys were so happy to be remembered. Like, yeah. it would keep me motivated and inspired. And I remember, like, George Chavalo I interviewed in, a, in, a, wow. in, a, in Toronto in a coffee shop. And then I remember being so tired... I was like, how can I just get, like, some proper sleep? And I was like, well, look, who do I know in Miami? It's, like, three days away. 
And I would then go and I'd find someone in Miami, like Florentino Fernandez, a great middleweight from the 60s, and go and look for him. And that's how it went. And I would be like, you know, well, what's the next city across? So I'd be going from, going from there up to Indianapolis and I'd be going to like Chicago and on to Salt Lake City and down to Vegas and then back up via Cincinnati and just trying to work out like how far these major cities were away, trying to find these guys that had vanished and just having an address and sometimes showing off on the door, people not being in, just getting back on a bus and moving again or waiting for hours to see if someone would come back or trying to door knock, door knock some neighbours and ask, you know, who's around. No mobile phones, and, and no, no Instagram, no phones, DMs. No, no. No, no GPS, nothing. You know, no map, no Google Maps, nothing. Just trying to find my way around. And some of these places are rough. Like, like you said about Atlantic City, actually, you've got a perfect, perfect thing there, actually. Um, when I walked around in Atlantic City, I was boxing at the time, and I was boxing in the power. Some good fighters, Shimon Alvarez, Lavander Johnson, who became world champ, uh, Ray Mercer, Virgil Hill, like I was in the gym with all these guys, Al Cole, um, good world champs and stuff in the Pleasantville wreck and in the PAL. And I remember walking around thinking I was bulletproof and like also not really caring if anything happened to me. Also not really caring if anyone robbed me because I had nothing to rob because I had no money, no phone or, or anything else. If anyone nicked my bank card, they could pay off my overdraft for me if they wanted. <laughs> And I remember walking around thinking like, not like I own this place, but not really giving a fuck. Do you know what I mean? Like thinking whatever. And weirdly, I went back to Atlantic City in like 2012 and I'm older, I've got kids. Uh, I'm the editor of Boxing News and I'm there to watch Frotch against Glenn Johnson. And I think, oh, let's go and see my mates back in the, back in the ghetto. And I walk back there and after like two blocks back from the ball where it starts to get a bit seedy, you know, I'm like, shit, shit. Like, this is scary. And now I'm like almost breaking into a run. And I'm thinking, it's the same place where I walked around absolutely fearless before. But like, you have kids, you grow up a little bit and you're like, yeah, this isn't where I need to be. <laughs> it's weird. Nothing had changed yeah. apart from me and my Other mindset. Other than you, man, it's funny you say this and I'm... <laughs> In a much more normal um, situation. I remember being 17 on my first lad's holiday and we, t- <laughs> we took out we took out mopeds. No helmet, no nothing. Never been a moped before. And I had my mate Chapo, who sadly passed away since. He always had dirty fingernails. He was uh, he was he's clinging to me, and he had I was giving him a backy on my on my on some moped doing 50 miles an hour on it's so hot in Turkey that the roads are shiny. And I'm rising around this little moped just like like a lunatic. If I come off, I'm dead. He did. We're both dead. Like there's no two ways about it. And at the time, I, it was a laugh. It was a giggle because I was 17. I would never, I, even I even when I use a bicycle now, I put a helmet on. <laughs> it's kind of funny how like yeah, yeah. things change. Um, obviously, yours is way more extreme. I mean, I lived in America, in America for the last, two, the last three years now. And it's a very divisive place. So I know exactly what you meant about the black faces and the white faces thing you said earlier. Because like I, I walk through towns and cities now and you have white areas and you have black areas. It's still quite segregated in many aspects. And, and I'm classed as black. I'm mixed, but I'm classed as black in America. And I walk through a white town, people look at you. And I'm when I'm in and and vice versa. So I understand how 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 mad of a time it must have been for you. I mean, I remember walking through Philly, and, and by the way, so obviously I wrote a book called The Road to Nowhere. Which you're gonna talk about. I don't want to get well, to your books well, it's because kind you've of, done... it's, it's kind of all in there, right? So and it is about me being this hobo. But I remember when my son was born in 2006, we were moving house. And I had all these photos of all these old fighters that I'd had developed because obviously this was on the old point and shoot photos. 
and and I had all my old luggage tags of how of the stops I'd made. And I thought one day, like this kid that's about to be born might say, what are you doing with like these 60, 70 pictures of old fighters and all these luggage tags? So then I started writing this book, not for publication, but just thinking one day he might know. And before my memory fades, I want to... I wanted to know about the journey. So I started writing The Road to Nowhere. And I, it wasn't published for years. I didn't even try and get it published for years because it was just for my son. Yeah. But that kind of documents all that. But yeah, going back to the crazy stuff, like I remember, and I think this is in, the, in that book as well, I remember walking through a really rough town in Germantown in Philadelphia, really rough area. I remember getting there and Jeff Chandler was like looking around, like thinking, how did you get here? I'm like, I walked. And he's like, was that bad for you? I'm like, well, there was this moment. <laughs> And I walked past this uh, this abandoned building and two guys came out and they both had guns and they both point, they pointed the guns at me as if to say, like, bang, bang. And I remember thinking at the time, like, you know, as if, like, threaten me for what? And that was, that was my mindset. Like, it's not, I'm not trying to be hard. I literally thought, like, you've literally picked the poorest person. I'm poorer than the people who've got houses here. I've got nothing. Like, do what you want. Do what you need to me. But like, I've got nothing. Anyway, like nothing ever, nothing ever happened. And, um, but yeah, it's weird. Like mindset changes over time. So, mate, I, as I mentioned earlier, it's such an inspiring story. I've known, I know a bit of this. Such an inspiring story. You went from this to the, to the heights of, of British boxing publication. Um, nobody can begrudge of your success that you've had and you will have in the rest of your career because the, the stuff you went through at this period now is just, no, very inspiring. You went from that and you became the the editor of Boxing News, one of, if not the most famous box magazines in the world. So that could be deemed as a great success. So it is a massive, huge success, a huge honour. <clears throat> I know at that point your life was also, I've heard you use the words, crumbling around you. How did you manage that? Uh... In all honesty, I don't really know that I did. Um, you know, uh, yeah, really rough period. Like, joining Boxing News was a dream come true. I left being the editor of a local paper to, to, for the... I left the top job at a local paper for the bottom job at Boxing News um, because, obviously, I, I just wanted to get in there. And I remember the first two or three years were great and, you know, I was just a, a writer, senior writer, helped develop the website a bit and, and it was great. But then... You know, I alluded to the the stuff about uh, my marriage earlier. Like, the, my marriage, in essence, broke finished on like the Christmas Eve, and I walked into that job as the editor on New Year's Day. And so, I remember everyone slapping me on the back. I remember going to a Maloney show up in Stoke, and it was a bit like The Godfather. You know, people were like lining up to shake your hands because you're the editor of the job. You're like now the made man. And I'm just thinking... One of the most like, powerful men in boxing? It, one of the most powerful roles. Yeah, I would say. I would say. Um, but, yeah. And, and, and But then, obviously, behind the scenes, it was carnage. Like, I didn't want to be home. Couldn't really be home. Um, was so uncertain. And, I, you know, and I was... Work, yeah, it was, just, it was just a really, really rough period. And like, I couldn't really get my head around any of it. And, like... The, the magazine was going through loads of changes at the time. You know, we actually, uh, you might remember, we, we had to bring in another magazine called Fight and Fit, which was like a, a bi-monthly first fitness magazine for MMA and boxing, which, which did really well for a time. 
so then, I, you know, my work there was, was, was doubled, trebled with a new publication. The website was growing and growing. We then had social media. We were doing video. We were doing podcasts. You know, the boxing news editor's job used to be a column a week, maybe a couple of previews. And now, like, it's everything. And I've got this turmoil at home, which is just, you know, absolutely horrendous, you know, almost indescribable. I've got two young kids that um, I'm not spending anywhere near as much time with them as I'd like to. Mm. And I want to spend time with them and I want to be with them. Um, and and I'm, I'm completely torn up by not being able to do that. So... And then there, there was the there was the because you obviously can't tell you just you, you you're not just going to have a chat with people you don't know when people say oh you know things must be great as the editor you know you know his dream job and all the rest of it firstly the the job and behind the scenes it was carnage then my actual life was carnage and then the job wasn't actually what people thought like you know for me it was like everyone thinks oh you get to go to the best fights and all the rest of it well for a start obviously as a, a dad that was separating you have. 26 weekends in a year where you can't go anywhere because you've got your kids that weekend. So instantly any fights that fall on those weekends, you can't go to, you've got to send someone else to. Then obviously you've got all the other stuff where you're trying to, you know, you've got to turn it down because you have that opportunity to be with your children. And so whatever it is, you know, they would always come first. So like a lot of the stuff I didn't do and, and, and wouldn't do because in case it closed the door on me being able to see the kids properly. So you know, it for, for for the right guy, it can probably be a dream job. But for me at the time, it was it was really rough um, to the point now where I don't even think I've I've blocked it off. I just don't have a, a load of memory for it. Like that period of time, 2010 to 2015, I don't. I would really struggle to recall a social moment to you or a holiday. What I could tell you is who fought who, who was on the undercard where the fight was. And maybe that is because I threw myself into my work a little bit. Uh, but maybe it's because I was in such a bad place. It's just like like a blur now, yeah. you know? And and I think that that's that that was it. Like, unequivocally, they were the darkest days of my life. Like, they were, like, literally, you know, suicide was in the next room. What stopped you? Uh, one time... When I was very, very close, a phone call from my brother and the phone literally went. And I'm like, okay, maybe that's a sign. Um, I don't know. It's a tough one. You wouldn't, well, you wouldn't say bottle. You wouldn't say you bottled it, right? I don't think that's a, the right thing to say because I don't, I don't think people go through it with it for any number of reasons. But I didn't want to lose. And that's not necessarily a winner's mentality, but I thought I was better than the situation I was in and I deserve better. Like, I do think, fundamentally, like, I'm a decent bloke. And I think I have more to offer my kids. Um, I think I have more to offer, full stop. Like, and I, I didn't think my journey was over. I always said, like, from a professional perspective as well, like, I want boxing to be in a better place when I finished than when I started. And I, definitely, I didn't think I contributed enough to make, to make a massive change. I did feel like when I wrote War and Peace with Ricky Hatton, I did feel like maybe that was my goal to like help him. He was going through a really rough time at, at that period. And I did think, you know, after that was done, I was like, maybe that is why I've been put on this earth to like help Ricky navigate that year or so. Um, and maybe that was it. Um, 
I actually think I, you know, I, I think we, I think I have, I have a greater purpose than that. But after each big project, I think, well, was that it? I don't think that's I've it. I've heard you say, I've heard you say in an interview, um, you you believed you were put on this earth to do something great, and then things happened in your life, and then you went through a transitional period, and then you realise in your own words, you're just a piece of dust, and you're on this earth to enjoy time here like anybody else. Do you still feel that way or do you feel like you have a purpose, a meaning to be here? Um, good question. Good question. Um, both. I think it would be a waste if you didn't feel like you have a purpose. Um, and I think we all, we all have a purpose in some way, shape or form, whether it's to help yourself or to help others. Leaving Boxing News at the end of 2014, start of 2015 was crucial for me because it allowed me to get off the treadmill. Like I was on the treadmill of work, of life, and it was relentless. You know, thinking three, four hours of sleep a night was normal and just thinking I'm one of those guys that doesn't need much and um, wasn't looking after myself, like didn't understand about nutrition the way I understand it now, um, or sleep or recovery. And when I left, I moved out into the country, owned a gym, bought a gym, um a CrossFit gym, got a dog, and life changed, and everything changed. And do you know what changed? It, the, change, the change came from the pursuit of happiness because happiness is not a real or sustainable goal. Like, if you're looking for happiness, you're in the wrong place. That's a crap advert for this podcast, isn't it? <laughs> But if you're, I don't think happiness is something you should strive for because if you strive for happiness, why stop there? Why wouldn't you strive for 24-hour-a-day euphoria, right? Why would you settle for happiness? I don't think happiness is something that you get. It's a, it's a, it's a derivative from something else. It's an emotion that you get. You invited me on this podcast, made me happy, right? Like that is as is, is, is flattering as it is, provokes happiness within me but what I can't but that's not sustainable when I leave and walk out and no one wants me I'm not going to be happy right I'll be happy I've done it I suppose right um but what you need or what I need is contentment and that is what the search is right when I can go around and walk my dogs and I don't have promoters from around the world phoning me and I don't have deadlines to meet and I don't have you know, a divorce that's dominating the front part of my brain 99% of the time and I'm not aching for my kids the way that I used to ache for them because, you know, I see them all the time. Like, the contentment is what I've been looking for where I can just be. And again, going back to where we talked about this solitude and loneliness, that's where I can be and I'm not tormented and I'm not happy, I'm just at peace. And that peacefulness is, is something I think people should strive for because I don't think happy is re a realistic aim. Like, if people say, oh, yeah, I'm really happy, that's great. I'm, I'm pleased for you. I won't say I'm happy for you. I'm pleased for you. But really, my happiness comes from being content and not wanting more and not wanting anything. Um, you know, I have a very quiet life. I think I have... I have I suppose the best way of describing it is if I have maybe six test tubes and I can't fill them all up to be a 10 out of 10, but if I can fill them all up to be like a 7 out of 10 every month, then I'll be okay. And that means spending time with my dogs, means spending time with my wife, 
not in that order. Uh, it means training. It means enjoying my work. It means spending time with my kids and spending time with my friends. And if I can keep them balanced, then that will lead me to be content. And that's what I think, you know, for me, that's what's, what's important because I realized, you know, when I talk about being dust and when I talk about um, whether it's leaving a legacy or wanting to leave boxing in a better place, which is, is slightly different because I think that's very achievable. When you really look back on history and like, and look at the people who've made a massive, massive difference to the world, you're probably going to be struggling to get beyond two hands in terms of the amount of people you can count. So to get into that, that area, I don't think it's wholly realistic. Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to be our best. Of course we should. But in terms of changing the world, um, my ideas have changed. But I might be able to change my corner of the world, which is what I'm trying to do with boxing and trying to be a force for good in boxing. You said that to me a number of years ago about the contentment. And that hit, and I'm so glad you covered it as well as you did with me all those years ago. So, uh, so thank you, and and I'm very happy you came on today. And there's still some more I want to talk about. Wolf, your divorce, I know it hit you so hard. And there'll be people listening to this going through a divorce and people struggling going through difficult relationships. What can you say to those people that want to give up, that are going through divorces? What can what advice can you give them? Um, stay in the fight. Like, definitely stay in the fight. Like, there were moments when, you know, I freely admit I didn't want to stay in the fight. I didn't want to, in boxing cliches, throw in the towel. Um, I had no idea that Johanna, my wife, would be, you know, round, round the corner. But I'm not, you know, not round the corner. We're talking years and years on now. But, you know, like, I would never have thought. Um, Did you think you're never going to be happy again? content again in a place in your life where no 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 no. i just i had i had i had in many ways so in many ways i was accepting of i'm just on my own now you know i was there was a period of time where i was very accepting of that thinking this is it and and that's fine like i don't mind my own company obviously i think we've, we've established that i don't mind i don't make myself crazy i don't overthink things i don't dwell on things like you know, going back to the school thing, if, I, if, I, if I'm the most unpopular person in the room then, I used to think that was crap. Now, if I'm the most unpopular person in the room, I really care. Like, You're it is what it is. Yeah, because yourself. I think I'm okay. Do you know what I mean? If people don't like me, that's okay. You can't like everyone and you, can, you certainly can't please everyone. And I think the minute you start trying to please everyone, you know, you're on a pretty shoddy foundation, right? Because, you know, you can't, it's just impossible. So... Yeah, I, I, you know, yeah, I would say stay in the fight because you can't predict what's going to be around the, the corner, and it might take a while. But maybe it takes the amount of time it takes because you need to heal properly before you can experience that kind of stuff again, uh, and before you let people experience those sort of emotions and that kind of stuff again. Like everything is a process. Like our lives are not designed to be a sprint. You know, everything is a process, and you go through stages of life, and you know. God, we've covered them here, right? Highs, lows, everything in between. And when you're looking at these periods, like when you're looking at my low periods, you're looking at years, right? You're looking at eras. Mm. You know, you're looking 13 to 16, um, 30 to 35, 
like even even that 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 period in America where I was struggling, you know, sometimes going two two and a half days without food, and loving the 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 the, the hunger, literal physical hunger, as in borderline probably developing some sort of eating disorder because I was thinking, well, if I've gone two days without food on this day, I can go two and a half days the next time. Like when when I think of these periods of of pain and struggle, like they're they're years. And fortunately, like, you know, people and, and the thing is these are these are largely internal struggles, right? You know, some people are dealt cards far harder than the ones I've had. Um, you know, people who've who've got really bad illnesses in the family and you know suffer real tragedies and horrible things like god i've lost a lot of people like it's really in my family it's only my mum and my brother left everyone else is gone but like that's that sadly that's normal right sadly you know as customato would say you know life is cruel little by little everyone's taken away from us um but that, that, again, is normal. Like, there's no point in me trying to be a victim. Like I said, people have it infinitely harder than me. People have had it infinitely harder than me. So stay in the fight because it might be, it might be shit this week. It might be bad next week. and It might be bad next year, I hate to say it. But the year after that, um, it might be okay. And also one thing I've learned as well very recently is just because you have a shit five minutes in a day doesn't mean the rest of the day is a waste either like that's something that i've only just really thought about you know sometimes i would chalk it off and think oh yeah that day's gone to pot now it hasn't like there's still plenty of time left in the day in boxing you have a bad round doesn't mean you've lost a fight you've had a bad 100%. round crack on again is there's 11 more rounds to go tris uh, this is fantastic i say about the instagram theme because you look like you have a lovely life a wonderful wife beautiful kids uh, you walk your dog you train like what more do you want like really if you strip it all to bear like what more do you want? Would you say your family, super quickly, would you say your family were your your greatest achievement? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, I would put my, my wife in there as well. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, 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 your wife, yeah, your, your family. Yeah, yeah like, 100%. you know, she's she's amazing. She Like, it's cliche, but she she wants me, she makes me want to be better. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I want to do stuff that makes her proud. Um, obviously I want to do stuff that makes the kids proud as well. Like I want them, you know, and, and that going, going to the Instagram thing. I know that they're, I know that they're, they're friends at school. They might be 16 and 14, but I know that they've, they've got kids at school. I know I'm not an embarrassment. I'm, I might not be a cool dad, but I know I'm a freaking unit by comparison to the other dads. And, and, you know, that's something that they can, you know, I'm, you know, they're not embarrassed by that. And that's cool. And that's another part of it, you know. And a, a big thing is me trying to stay fit and healthy into old age. And, that, and that's what I'm trying to achieve, trying to keep going and trying to stay in this fight, stay, stay on the journey for as long as I possibly can. Tris, um, I've enjoyed this talk as much, if not more, than I thought I would. Uh, I think you've already answered the question, but anybody going through a tough time now, going through adversity, um, have you got any advice for them? Yeah, just keep going. Just keep going. Like, the yeah, like you, like, and you know, I'm, I broke that down into a microcosm. Like five minutes doesn't make a bad day. A bad year doesn't make a bad life. Two years doesn't make a bad life. Three years doesn't. I can't bitch, bitch and moan about my 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 poor hand or 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 anything that I've gone through because people have it infinitely worse. And you might be going through a shit period, but it's not going to always be like that. And you can, you can not only come out the other side, but you can meet people 
that will help change your perspective and give you an added meaning and incentive for life. Mate, so where can people follow you? Where can they follow you? You've got your own uh, podcast, Boxing Life Stories. Um, that's brilliant. Obviously, you talk to people about their life stories and it's fantastic. I've been on it. You know, it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing podcast. Please listen to it. Um, your books, Damage, uh, Roads Nowhere. We've got War and Peace. War and Peace with Ricky Hatton. We've got um, Money, which is about the life and times of Floyd Mayweather. Uh, and most recently, Warrior, which is about Matthew Saad Mohammed, who was a light heavyweight champ that I was actually living with in Atlantic City back in those those incredibly poor days from sort of 2001 to 2004-ish. Um, and we agreed to write his book actually in 2001. And then when the pandemic when the pandemic came, I revisited it. He passed away in 2014. Um, but that's a really meaningful book to me as well. Other than that, just at Tristixon on Instagram and Twitter and uh, uh it's been an absolute privilege, mate. I really appreciate the opportunity to come in and talk to you. You're very, mate. It's been, it's been wonderful. And let's, let's get a workout in together soon. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah. As long as it doesn't involve, involve me doing any kind of moonsault or poking <laughs> my neck or anything, that'll be great. <laughs> what a guy Trish Dixon is. What a... A lovely, lovely bloke. One of the nicest men I've met in boxing and just met in general. A top, top bloke. I mean, he spoke so powerfully about some hard-hitting things. And he's somebody that we're definitely going to have on the podcast again because he's got so much more. Like some of the things that we didn't even cover about Tris and Tris's career is incredibly inspiring. So Tris, thank you so much, mate. Next week, we've got a really special guest on the podcast, Mitchell Greenaway. She was my therapist <laughs> for a long time. So it's going to be very interesting. Oh, how the tables have turned. I'll be the one asking her the questions. Incredibly inspiring. Teenage mother, raised three kids, created businesses with no real qualifications. Honestly, her story is a really, really powerful one. This podcast isn't always about success. It's not always about success, what you think success is. It's not always about earning millions of pounds or winning world titles or Olympic medals. What is success? It's having a goal and achieving it. Now, Mitchell is as inspiring as a person as anybody in my contact list. She's inspired me massively, and I'm sure she's going to inspire you too. So make sure you tune in next week and every week thereafter if you feel like any of the topics that we spoke about in today's podcast can really help somebody then please send the podcast to them so they can listen and and learn and grow from the conversation we've just now had and um, if you enjoy this podcast please like please share please subscribe so you get the podcast bright and early next week i really want this podcast to grow and to be something really big to help as many people as possible. <laughs>